Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 62, Printing and Literature from Caxton to Shakespeare. Being someone who loves books, this is something I've wanted to delve into for a long time, and I'm super excited to do this episode. Before I get started, though, a few reminders. First, please check out the Agora Podcast Network, of which this podcast is a proud member. The Agora Podcast of the Month is the History of Egypt podcast, and you can find it at egyptianhistorypodcast.com or on iTunes and any of those sorts of podcasty places. So as I've said before, there's a lot going on in the England cast world, and I want to make sure you know all of the stuff that's going on. First, the Tudor Digital Advent Calendar is going on now because it's December. So if you go sign up for the mailing list, you will get a lovely digital advent calendar and every day a window opens up to some kind of Tudor history goodness, like a recipe for wassail or a Christmas playlist or decoration ideas. So you can sign up and get that and enjoy it for the rest of the holiday period. Secondly, the Tudor Planner is selling really well. I'm only printing 500 of them. We're almost getting through. So be sure to order yours if you want to spend 2017 with the Tudors. It's a weekly and monthly planner. It's filled with weekly history, this week in Tudor history, quotes by famous Tudors, as well as musical listening suggestions with an exclusive Spotify playlist so you can access everything. So check that out at tutorplanner.com. And we're still planning the April tour to England, where we're going to listen to music and have history tours, everything like that, in a lot of great cities throughout Southern England. All of that is at englandcast.com. So check it out. Okay, history. (laughs) So about two years ago, I did an episode on William Caxton, and he was the one who brought the movable type printing press to England in the late 15th century. And I've wanted to explore this topic in more depth for a while. To me, it seems like the printing press made so many of the main themes of the 16th century possible, religious reform, the Bible being spread in English, pamphlets about religion, and of course, the growth of the theater and printing Shakespeare's plays. By the time of Shakespeare, we saw crowds of stationers around St. Paul selling books, pamphlets, broadsheets, 
we had the worshipful company of stationers receiving a royal charter. And so in this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the main highlights of printing and literature in 16th century England. Now, I can't talk about everything, and there's so much here, and a podcast episode is only like 20 to 25 minutes long. So I really encourage you to go get the show notes if you want to learn more about this, because I have links to lots of different sources that I used. So check that out if you want to learn more. So this is your basic introduction. And also, I did do a few episodes on literature and the theater, as well as Tudor poets. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go back to the archive and listen to those. So for this episode, I want to talk about the ideas, some of what changed in the 16th century, and some of what was being published. So to get a good sense of the changes, we need to go back to how books were produced before the printing press. Books were, of course, luxury items. They were created by hand by monks who would write out each word. It would take weeks, if not months, for each book to be created and illustrated. So you can imagine how much they would cost. Only the very, very wealthy would have had access to any of these manuscripts. And the idea of non-noble people being able to read at all was completely foreign. This began to change when Caxton brought the printing press to England. The movable type printing press made mass production much easier. And in the show notes, I have a video showing how you used one. But basically, you had these molds for each letter, and they were kept in individual cases. The capital letters were kept in cases above the regular ones, which gives us the name uppercase and lowercase. You would pick out the letters that you wanted and place them in the printing press. You would put your ink over them, roll them on the same way we, we might do with stamping today, and then you would run the paper over it. You can get an idea how once you have the press set up and you have the letters in place, you could easily print multiple copies of each page. One of the first books printed in England was by Anthony Rivers. He was the brother to Elizabeth Woodville, and of course, that was Henry VIII's grandmother through his mother, Elizabeth of York. Like her mother, Elizabeth of York took a keen interest in learning, and there's evidence that she personally taught her younger children their letters and handwriting, including the young Henry before he was heir to the throne. So it was really important in the early Tudor family to have books around and to kind of support that with Elizabeth Woodville's brother and Elizabeth Woodville herself. Anthony Rivers' book was dedicated to his brother-in-law, Edward IV. And it's an early example of dedications being used to flatter or gain patronage or protection from kings and nobles. And this would become a theme throughout the 16th century. Writers would dedicate books to nobles, in part asking for their patronage, but it was also seen as a form of protection in case they were publishing something that could be seen as controversial. Monarchs and their ministers could control the narrative and very clearly come out in support or opposition of a particular belief simply by allowing themselves to receive a dedication. If you dedicated a book to a particular person, it was as if that person was giving their agreement. Now, Henry VIII himself had a printer who was solely responsible for printing the books that had been dedicated to his queens. All of his queens were recipients of books that were dedicated to them, and they show the variations between what was clearly sanctioned by the king and what was dedicated to the royal family simply for patronage. Catherine of Aragon was the recipient of dedications of books that were in support of Catholicism, as well as some that were purely for entertainment, like Thomas Wyatt's translation of Plutarch's Quiet of Mind. Throughout the changes in Henry's wives, different books were released that hinted at either support or not at the treatment of Catherine or Anne Boleyn. Later, Henry's final wife, Catherine Parr, would actually publish her own book, Psalms or Prayers, 
which was published anonymously because she was a woman and a queen. But it is a really exciting thing to see Henry's wife publishing a book. Dedications could also be seen as a request for money. Some really savvy Elizabethan writers would cleverly dedicate various editions of the same book to different nobles in different parts of the country, and they thought that would increase their chances of receiving money. So rather than just dedicate everything to one particular noble, you could kind of make the rounds and dedicate your book to lots of nobles, and hopefully one of them would give you money. So there was the sheer number of books being printed in Europe in the 16th century could be compared to the influx of information that we have all experienced in the last 20 years with the internet. In 1500, printing presses in operation throughout Western Europe had produced about 20 million volumes. In the 16th century, with the presses spreading into England and lots of other different places, their output rose tenfold to an estimated 150 to 200 million copies. The operation of a press became so synonymous with the actual act of printing that it became the name of an entire new branch of the media, the press. There was an increased interest in education during this period, since people now had books that they could read, and literacy rates exploded. Illiteracy was still very high, especially for women and for lower classes, but more learning resources opened up for children of all rankings at young ages. And literacy in this time period also Im- it implied the ability to read, not to write English. Now, this was important because the Protestant religions placed a huge importance on reading and devotion of the Bible and other religious texts. So they wanted people to be able to read in English. And it's hard for historians to accurately analyze the literacy rates, and it's still kind of in its very early stages. But there is a professor, David Cressy, and he was able to look at public do- documents like court documents and marriage licenses and wills. And he was able to kind of go through and figure out literacy rates from that. If you weren't literate, you would sign your name with an X rather than your actual name. So you can kind of go through these public documents and see how the literacy rates were changing. And they were really exploding. So he has a book called Literacy in the Social Order, which goes into a lot of depth on that. So let's talk about what kinds of books were being published in this time. One of the great things about the printing press was that you could easily standardize your textbooks. That made ensuring education much easier. One example of an early standardized textbook was by John Stanbridge. He was a schoolmaster. He taught at Modeling College in Oxford, and he wrote several grammar books. One of the most famous is the Vulgaria from 1509. This was a much different kind of grammar book than we would expect to see, and it was in both Latin and it was used for translation as well. So we see scatological language, we see flirtations, and everyday things like shopping and insults. Students would use it to translate an example of the vocabulary included were sentences like, here be many pretty maids, and other very useful phrases like that. The Vulgaria is a really fascinating look at what a humanist scholar thought would be a fun learning tool for his students. And it's just really interesting to note that because you could now print out lots and lots of textbooks that were all the same very easily, it became much more easy to standardize education and make sure that everywhere in the country was getting the same kind of education. In addition to textbooks, Another type of book that was taking off during this period was cookbooks and also books on household management. 
So the early forerunners of Martha Stewart and real simple and good housekeeping and things like that. These would be used by the ladies of the house, or perhaps as literacy spread, even the chief servant in charge of the household could look at them. The first person to make a full-time living writing cookbooks and household management books was actually a little bit past our time. Her name was Hannah Woolley, and she was born in 1622, and she wrote recipe books. She was the first person to make a full-time living doing this, but there were plenty of cookbooks and women sharing recipes and household tips in the Elizabethan period. It was one of the most popular forms of literature at the time. So now, adult ears only, because similarly to what we see with the internet, pornography took off in Elizabethan England. One of the most famous writers who imported his writing to England was an Italian named Pietro Aretino. He was a satirist. He also made a very good living advising people in sex and vice and then blackmailing them. So both Francis I of France and Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire slash Spain employed him at the same time trying to get him to find dirt on the other on the other person. He kept most of Europe in suspense over what kind of vice he was going to find on someone next, similar to tabloid magazines today. But he also printed his stories of vice. He has a satire of a platonic dialogue set in a brothel. And one of his most famous books is called The School of Whoredom, W-H-O-R-E, Whoredom, which offers references to the physical contortions expected of the professional. Things like the crane, the horizontal shuffle, and the grazing sheep. I'm not sure if it's illustrated. I would have to look that up. Anyway, the courts ate this stuff up. Um, They loved it. And an actual funny, fun fact about him is that the word on the street is that he eventually died from suffocation when he laughed too much, which I think is a really great way to die. (laughs) Can you just imagine that? Like you die laughing? So he sounds like a really interesting fellow, and he was really popular around the courts of England at the time, or around the courts of Europe. Christopher Marlowe, the other famous playwright who could easily have rivaled Shakespeare if he had lived longer, he translated Ovid's Amores, and another very famous poem at the time, Spencer's Fairy Queen. It's one of the most famous poems of Elizabethan time. It's actually based on King Arthur's supposed dream of intercourse with a goddess, So this was very popular then, as it is now. (laughs) On the other end of the spectrum, of course, we can't talk about printing without bringing religion into the conversation and the rise of the Protestant Reformation. Like I said before, you can easily make a case that the Protestant Reformation succeeded in large part thanks to the printing press, which allowed for these tracts to be easily and widely disseminated. And this is where we hear famous stories such as William Tyndale. He translated the Bible into English. Now you have to remember at this time period, the Bible only existed in Latin. Sermons were preached in Latin. So it was really inaccessible for the vast majority, 99.9% of the people couldn't even read the Bible or didn't even understand it. So having the Bible in a language that people could read and understand was a main tenant of the Protestant Reformation. Now, William Tyndale was um, eventually executed. 
The big fight between this was that the authorities thought that if you gave the average person the opportunity to read and interpret the Bible for themselves, they would come up with heretical interpretations that were not sanctioned by the official authorities. So they wanted to keep the Bible out of the English language, out of the average person's ability to understand. They didn't think people could be trusted with the ability to read and comprehend and try to interpret the word of God themselves. So they executed people like this. In the early days, it would be the Protestants who who were executed like William Tyndale. But during Elizabeth's reign, England would also see Catholics imprisoned and executed. Now that was because the Jesuits would bring in seditious materials. At the time, especially with war with France looming, it was really difficult to try to balance your loyalty to Elizabeth with your loyalty to the Pope. So as the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth, Catholics were seen more and more as a threat to England and their materials, their tracts that would preach their religion were seen as seditious and they were illegal. So Tyndale first published the Bible in English in 1525 in Cologne, and he would have it smuggled into England for distribution to the Protestants there. And of course, almost 100 years later, in 1611, there were 54 scholars who produced the very famous King James Bible, which many people still use today. And that drew significantly from Tyndale's translation. And one estimate suggests that the New Testament in the King James Version is actually 83% Tyndale's, and the Old Testament is 76% Tyndale. By the end of the Elizabethan period, the book trade was centered around St. Paul's, and it also had expanded to Holborn. Nowadays, Bloomsbury is the capital of the book publishing industry in London, so it hasn't moved very far. If you walk around Bedford Square, Russell Square, you see these nondescript buildings all around you with these little plaques that say they're the headquarters of this publisher or that literary agent, and it's evidence of the book trade that's been going on there for 400 years. The Company of Stationers, like I said, was first sanctioned in the 1550s. It was eventually a guild that was charged with regulating the number of printers, and it could help keep these illegal and seditious materials from being widely circulated. More than what was printed in England, though, what concerned authorities were the presses on the continent that published illegal material and smuggled it into England. But there's so much illegal material that remains, and so that shows that their their attempts to keep it out of England were actually pretty ineffective. One of the most interesting and tantalizing books we still have from this time period is the personal journal that Edward VI wrote. Now, I say it's tantalizing because of how much it actually leaves out and the lack of emotion that it often shows. But in the days before everyone and their mother had a blog, this journal shows a unique insight into what Edward was dealing with on a personal level, as well as in his policy. The rift in religion between Edward and his sister Mary, who was a Catholic, was very famous, of course. And in 1551, he wrote, The Lady Mary, my sister, came to me to Westminster, where after greetings, she was called with my counsel into a chamber where it was declared how long I had suffered her mass in hope of her reconciliation and how now there being no hope as I saw by her letters, unless I saw some speedy amendment, I could not bear it. She answered that her soul was God's and her faith she would not change, nor hide her opinion with dissembled doings. It was said I did not constrain her faith, but willed her only as a subject to obey, 
and that her example might lead to too much inconvenience. So this is what we have for six years with Edward, and it only lets off when he was starting to get sick with his final illness. So it's a really interesting thing to read, and like I said, I have links to it on the website. So I could go on forever giving these examples of the books that were written during this time period, but I hope that you now at least have an introduction to the types of materials that were written and published in the 16th century and the effect that mass printing had on the spread of ideas, literacy, education, and the way it was attempted to be regulated. If you go to englandcast.com and check out the show notes, like I said, I have links to a lot of these resources and you can learn a lot more. So thanks for listening so much, everybody. And the next episode is going to be an interview with Linda Porter on her new book, which is a little bit later than our time. It's on the children of Charles I. But she also was just working as a consultant on the new BBC One Six Wives series. So we're going to talk a little bit that about that as well. So stay tuned for that. I have a growing list of topics that I want to cover in 2017. I have this really long Evernote note with all of these things. And every time I think of something, I write it in there. But the final episode of 2016 is going to be on cosmetics and looking good in Elizabethan England. And that's going to kind of be a partner episode to last year's episode on fashion and sumptuary laws. So we're going to talk about, you know, how you would put lead on your face because why not? So I'm going to talk with you soon. And thanks again for listening. And I hope you're having a really great Advent season. Blow northern wind, ascend for maybe sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoffe, Bord in Baurabrik, that soul is Samly's on Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>